everyone, and welcome to the Learn to Lead podcast brought to you by Ability, an experiential learning company based in beautiful Austin, Texas. I'm your host, Matthew Confer, and today on the show, we have Sally Thornton, who is the founder and CEO of Forche, a company that helps organizations find great talent. She is also a frequent keynote speaker on the future of work, and her work has been featured by the BBC, Forbes, and the Wall Street Journal. Thanks so much for joining us today, Sally. Thanks for having me. So on your website, uh, for Shay, it says, quote, if these were easy problems, you wouldn't need us. So that's a bold, <laughs> it's provocative, and to be honest, it resonates with me. So why is it so hard for most organizations to tackle the challenge of finding great people and making work better? Um, I love that you love that. And now I'm conflicted because we're redesigning the website. <laughs> it's been eight years and I was like, I think we need a fresh approach, but I love that that resonates with you. Um, so the reason we started with that eight years ago was um, inevitably, you know, simple problems. You don't need to have a partner to sort of co-create how might we improve this. And so when people call us, they often say like, I don't know if you can do this. <laughs> And then they lead in with, you know, something around adding a key member to the team who's basically kind of like the joke is we'll say like a rainbow unicorn, um, like this perfect person who has all these um, skills and competencies and they've done it again, they've done it before and they want to do it again. And, you know, it's just, it feels slightly ridiculous on the individual side. And then on the team side, they're often wanting to fix really hard problems around inclusion and diversity or overwork and burnout. Um, and, and so the big problems are typically what, why people call us. And again, if it was an easy problem, I don't think they would call us. So it's our way of saying like, we like it, like bring it on. It's a hard problem. Hmm. Okay. So you said rainbow unicorn there. You gave a talk where you talked about purple unicorns, which are the <laughs> idyllic, perfect people to join our teams. What should we be working for? Um, given that those purple and rainbow unicorns probably are hard to find. So the biggest challenge when on the recruiting side, when you're looking for the joke on the unicorn side, is you're looking for a specific individual versus saying who's the best complement for the team. So um, often we get really narrow focus when we're hiring because we come from a place of fear. Like we don't want to make the wrong hiring mistake. It's expensive. It takes us tons of time and lowers morale if it's not the right person. And so that's what we sort of notice on the behavioral econ side. Like I really focus more on, on the emotional element to, to finding the right person for the team versus just the skills. Cause frankly, you can look at the skills. It's not that hard to figure out, can this person, you know, code and then what you want them to code or go to market strategy with the right background. Like that's not that hard to figure out. What's hard to figure out is how are they going to um, complement your team and what's their mindset like, are they a learner? All these things that are much more of the, um, you know, emotional side of it. So, so anyway, so what we basically say is don't come to us with a list of 17 criteria of skills and competencies and backgrounds, because if you actually look at the people who are doing the hiring, they often don't have <laughs> all of what they're asking for. Um, in fact, there was one venture capitalist who was like, you know, we're really trying to find a woman to be a partner at our firm, but we just aren't seeing the backgrounds. And we all looked up his background. His background was not at all aligned with the job description of a partner, which he holds the same title. Um, so it just kind of goes to show that, like, when we're thinking about hiring someone, are we 
coming from a place of fear? Are we listing way too many criteria? And are we thinking about actually teamwork? Or is this person really an individual contributor who you know, doesn't need to think about all of those other elements of, of how do they influence you know, without a title? How do they get along with the team? Are they you know, complementary in, in background and expertise versus just replicating you know, what you are, which we call homophily in social science? So it's, just, it's a little bit more complicated. And, and so that's why we sort of joke that the unicorn is really defined criteria that's really narrow. And we like to open the aperture and say, how might we actually think about teamwork and qualities that are not on a resume? So the industry you're in is interesting. It's vital. Um, it's also very competitive. And you guys have been relatively successful. Uh, we were looking at um, and talking about the fact that you were one of Inc. Magazine's fastest growing um, private companies. What does it take to be a leader of an organization that's moving super fast in a vital industry that's also changing every week, every month, every day? Um, so I'm from the Midwest where you don't have a high opinion. You don't brag. <laughs> you don't like feel good about yourself. Pride does not exist as a feeling. And so when anybody was like, how is it that you're doing this? I say, it, we're, we just do what we say we're going to do. <laughs> so part of it is, you know, set expectations properly. Um, know that you can deliver on whatever you're promising. And then frankly, just be really easy to work with and fluid and all those great words. We love agile, right? And, and so it, it, for us, it's really just the basics of work that actually keep us ahead of, of our competition. Because I think sometimes um, our competition likes to promise a lot. And we try to be really honest about, well, this is what's going to be hard. This is what's going to be great. Um, and then actually deliver what we say. It, it sounds so basic, but honestly, like basic works. Hmm. Well, obviously time is, is finite and, and we're all struggling with it. What do you wish you had more time for? What, what, knowing what you know now about how hard the industry is and the success that you've had, what do you wish you could carve more time out for to even make you guys more successful? You know, what we haven't done well, and we're using the pandemic as an excuse to do now, is the infrastructure side. I think we do a really good job with improv. Like, we listen well, and we are creative, but then we're not building the structures behind what we're learning to make it easier to do it the next time. So we're using the pandemic to say, okay, things are slower. So how do we use this time really thoughtfully? And we never felt like we had time before to have a CRM, right? Or structures of, of how do we codify what our processes are in ways that are more scalable so when we're onboarding new people they don't have to just listen and have it be you know storytelling <laughs> but there's actually like documentation so we feel like we're kind of growing up during the pandemic to say like these structures that'll allow us to grow more consistently um, are what we never had time for before that I'm making time for now. Hmm. Well, I, I want to learn a little bit and maybe dive in a little bit deeper on that because you worked with Stanford on their um, redesigning and redefining work project, which, which forced you or moved you to found WorkLab in 2015, all about kind of the future of work, which is obviously a passion of, of yours. Can you explain to our listeners why kind of rethinking the future of work is such an important pursuit? Yeah, so it really, it hangs on this, on, on the many cognitive biases that we hold as professionals. Um, so we're highly um, 
favoring our intellect in Western society. And we just sort of think um, we can think our way through any problem, but actually we have all these hidden biases that are essentially flaws in decision-making. And so what I saw, you know, current work being done, I saw a lot of status quo bias. Like we want to hire people who look like us, sound like us, think less like us. It's like all status quo. And a big challenge with that is there's been no change in the percentage of women leadership for over a decade, like zero. As much as we talk about gender equality and we're a meritocracy and the best idea wins, zero change in women leaders over the last decade. So like you knew something was wrong about work when you just look at the data. Because, you know, human to human, you can say like, I'm fair and I think, you know, we're doing a great job promoting the right people. But if you actually just look at the hard data and say, okay, what percentage of women are you promoting? What percentage of people of color are you promoting? You know, what percentage of across age diversity or ability diversity are you promoting? You actually see that the data is telling a different story. So I knew that the future of work had to be more fair. Like it had to be genuinely about, you know, who's contributing, who's right for the next level. And it can't be the status quo bias and these other biases that we have, unconscious biases. Again, I typically, I'm not a lawyer, so I don't think of like the conscious biases that you could get sued for. I'm really talking about like really good decision-making. And what we were seeing in the data at Stanford was just, there's no way that this is a meritocracy based on when you just look at the data. So that was a lot of it. And then the other part was overwork. Hmm. The future, like right now, when you look at, um, again, data from the last five to eight years, and I'm sure in the pandemic, it's going to be really interesting to, to see what comes out of it. People are exhausted. And this, we have this bias uh, to the ideal worker norm, which is someone who's fully dedicated to work and works all the time. And so he or she has someone else who's taking care of the family <laughs> and, you know, it can work all the time. And that's a huge problem because it doesn't work for the ideal worker. They're exhausted. Um, and it doesn't work for anyone who doesn't look like the ideal worker because maybe they have a family, right? They have aging parents or young kids and, and they have this more blended life. And so when we were looking at the future of work, we said, we have to like see talent differently and we have to change the structure in how we promote and recognize work and see what creativity is. Cause the future of work is about creativity, right? Which is problem solving. So it's not like creativity of I'm creating art. <laughs> it's more, you know, uh, creative problem solving, coming up with novel ideas, whether it's technology or what you know, whatever your field is, um, and and overwork is a killer to creativity. And yet, it's kind of how work has been done in the past. So we really tried to look and say, what are the inflection points where we're seeing individuals and teams not do their best work, and how might we redesign those in a much more fluid way that we think actually enables people. To, to, to sort of embrace what the future of work offers, which is more fairness, um, more integration of work and life. Like we know we want these things, but we have to change the structure of work. We can't just ask individuals to change. And I think that was a big deal on the social science side that I did not see um, growing up. In the Midwest, it was like work your tail off and it was very much an individualistic kind of culture and recognition. But the reality is work is a team sport. And so when I was hanging out with the social scientists at Stanford, they were really showing me through data, like, we have to think about things at the team level, because asking individuals to change is really tough, right? Mm -hmm. And that's, that's a lot of what you see in like behavioral economics and others. So you've been at this pursuit now, 
work lab front for, for five years. Can I ask you a two part question? I guess part one is where are you more optimistic? Um, and then where are you more pessimistic in what you've seen over the last five years? Hmm, that's a great question. Um, I'm more optimistic that when we start to talk about inclusion and diversity, it's no longer just like a social, social justice warrior or a um, social impact that feels like less than in terms of like a business priority. I feel as if the data are like have overwhelmed <laughs> all of our intellect to say, yes, actually inclusion and diversity like is, is a win-win. Like no one loses in this scenario. I feel I'm, I'm optimistic that that's genuinely how people believe. And, and so the question is, how do we change the structure? And that's where I'm a little pessimistic because I feel like even though people have their head in the game and their heart in the game and they see how these things connect, they don't seem to have the um, patience to actually like run an experiment and figure out, okay, well, so what structure should we change? Um, it feels, I think, sometimes a little bit overwhelming, which is why Work Lab was about how do we break down these big questions into smaller, discrete design thinking problems that are doable, right? And, and it, I had to really push boulders up a hill to get people to try design thinking experiments, even though they're, you know, well thought of and respected in the, um, you know, product side of the world. So like marketing and product love design thinking, but I'm in the human centered design world of like people ops and HR and, and those, those audiences had a lot of skepticism and still like, I have to find people who are incredibly modern and risk takers to run an experiment around how do we change it? So that's where I'm like still frustrated. I feel like, you know, I, we need more of a bell curve of people who have the, the courage and, and ability to run an, you know, to look at data and say like, let's try this. Um, to, to actually change the structures. Hmm. Well, the whole imagery of kind of pushing that boulder up the hill uh, is definitely illustrative of the problem. And, and I think part of the problem is that first step, that first move. So mm -hmm. if we're an organization, a small organization, a massive organization, what's a good kind of first step to think about where the problems are that we need to attack? Or maybe not even where the problems are, where the opportunities are, where should we start? You always want to start with data because if you don't know what where the problems exist in your sort of employee experience cycle, um, then it, it is too big of a problem, right? So um, if you have a data analytics team, having them look and say, um, you know, what are the pass-through rates at each part of when we're recruiting? Is it in sourcing? Is it in interviewing? Is it in the first round interview, third round interview, final slate? Like where are we seeing people drop off that from a data perspective, you could say, okay, it's, wow, how come is it just black men that aren't coming through the process? Or how come is it, right, that these, these um, individuals in a certain group are not making it through in a proportion that would be representative, right? That's the, the, the what you're looking for. And typically, you know, it's around really critical decision points, again, where we go to being risk averse and we, um, and we are uncomfortable. And so we, we make decisions that make us more comfortable. And that is going back to the normative ideal worker person. So, so looking at the data to say, where is the, the biggest, um, you know, blockage of, of a meritocracy and then designing a small sprint around how do we mitigate that? How do we mitigate bias when we're, you know, really focused on fast thinking and we actually need to slow down our thinking and be more thoughtful 
to um, who's actually, you know, should be promoted or should get that stock option or whatnot. Hmm. Well, starting with data and sprinting and, and all of that is, is a great spot actually to end our conversation because I think that gives us our listeners a ton of things to think about, but it does leave us enough time for our rapid fire questions that we ask all guests. So if you're ready, I will start with question number one, with, which is this, Sally. If you could describe your personal leadership style in one word, what would that word be? Real. And the I give it to you straight. The, I like it. Just give it to me straight. The final round. <laughs> is, um, what is the best piece of advice that you have ever received? Not to take VC money. I thought in order to be a cool kid, like I had to get VC funding. And I actually did a walk with Heidi Roizen, who's this amazing like venture capitalist. And uh, she was like, don't, don't do it. <laughs> it was just so great to have her give me the confidence that I could do this on my own. Um, and I wasn't building something so big that needed it. So it was both logical and emotional. And I needed that, that combination of, um, you know, run your own ship, be in charge of your own destiny. Um, don't have other people telling you what risks you should or shouldn't take as a venture capitalist. And when I see things like WeWork and other, you know, postmortems of companies that got tons of money and just went, you know, down a path that was not good for many, I feel really lucky that I'm in charge of my own destiny. Well, confidence in being in charge of your own destiny is a great spot to close. So thank you for joining us today, Sally. Where can our listeners find out more about you? You know, LinkedIn is where I post the most information. I try to share the science and insights and different research that we're doing. So um, on LinkedIn, it's just Sally Thornton, T-H-O-R-N-T-O-N. And our website is Forche, F as in Frank, O-R-S-H-A-Y.com, which it is going to change. So I'm curious to hear your feedback <laughs> about what you think in the next rev. We'll be sure to give it to you. And thank you for all of the great insight. And thank you to all of our great listeners for joining us today. If you enjoyed today's show, we would love a rating and review in your podcast app of choice. And we truly appreciate it when you share our show with your network. You can find me on social media at Matthew Confer, and you can find our organization Ability, that is A-B-I-L-I-T-I-E at Ability.com. And be sure to subscribe so that you get our next episode. And I want to thank all of you for joining us on the Learn to Lead podcast.